Good morning and welcome to episode 100 of the Isle of Faces podcast. I am your jolly green giant and I'm speaking to you from the hot spring that is apparently England right now. But who cares about any of that? You heard me right. Episode 100, 100, do not adjust your set. It is so very, very surreal to say those words, let me tell you, but say them I must because somehow that is the truth. That is the level we have reached. I have so many things to say about all of that, but for now it just has to be a huge thank you to all of you. I can't say it any differently. Whether you've been around since episode 99 or episode 1, and if there are any of you out there who've actually listened to all 100 of the episodes, then you really are a trooper. Wow. But I adore you all either way, and I thank you all. I know I say thank you every week, and so I should, but this one is obviously a bit special. Thank you to everyone who has ever listened to the podcast, or liked a tweet, or told a friend. Thank you to those who've left a rating, or a review, or a kind word. The complimentary messages I've received over the years continue to blow my mind and warm my soul. Thank you to the guests that we've had on back in the past. Thank you to those who've just given me advice or have been an inspiration. There are hundreds of you out there. And thank you, obviously, to our wonderful, wonderful patrons. We wouldn't have got here without any of you. Episode 100. It really does blow your mind. I have to say it again. At some point, maybe I'm going to have to do another mini episode kind of reflecting on that a bit more, but not right now. No, instead, I'm going to thank you yet again for pushing and motivating me to get to 100 episodes by delivering to you a special, brand new type of episode and somehow. That's not even the most exciting thing happening today. I've got an even bigger, more exciting present for you. Yes, yes, I must explain what this new episode format is and remind you what we're actually doing here today and do some other admin things as well, but that can come in a moment. Before that, you all know the real treat for reaching episode 100. I know you've been waiting, I've been waiting, and I can now finally, very, very excitingly, welcome our brand new co-host, regular guest, top green person, whatever we wish to call her, my fellow green chums, it is the most momentous of occasions here on our aisle as I have the honour to introduce for the first time Emily of the Eerie. Emily, hello, welcome and how are you today? Hello, uh, thank you so much. Big thank you uh, for the warm welcome. I am doing great. Uh, gosh, I am just so honoured to be here. Thank you again for inviting me to the aisle in the first place. Um, Probably not very professional of me to fangirl out, but seriously, such a huge honor to be asked uh, to be on one of my all-time favorite podcasts. No, no, not at all, not at all. All compliments are welcome, but we are all, me especially, so excited and thankful to have you aboard and be a part of this brand new era on the aisle because that is the level we've reached now. We're finally here. And I can tell everyone you've been having a big effect already just behind the scenes before we even get you on the mic and actually get to hear your takes. So again, let me take the opportunity to say thank you and welcome you, our patrons and listeners. They've been doing the same thing for the past few weeks. We're also very glad and lucky to have you here. Uh, well, I certainly feel the love. Thank you all so much for entrusting me with the opportunity. I'm just thrilled to be a caretaker of the aisle. <laughs> yes, yes, we're good to have you here. Now, I have already very quickly explained to everybody uh, on those previous announcement episodes just a little bit about how you've come to be here and who you are in general and all those types of things. But I'm sure everybody would much rather hear it from you yourself. So please do go ahead and give us a little bit of an introduction. Sure, sure. So uh, Emily of the Eerie, um, that name came about primarily because I love alliteration, but I'm also really excited about the upcoming Veil storyline in Winds, and I think the name kind of reflects that as well. 
I've been a member of the fandom since Game of Thrones season one, uh, just like you, <laughs> or, or just like mm-hmm. you, I came to the books through the show. Uh, a few of my good friends really encouraged me to read the books uh, when they knew that I was like loving the show and didn't want to wait for season three, I think it was, to come out. So uh, yeah, I, I binged through the books uh, between seasons and I've, I've really never looked back. I like to joke that I'm like always on a reread, uh, but that's pretty true <laughs> because of audiobooks. I know that so feeling. thank you, Audible. <laughs> thank you, Roy Detrees. Yeah, so I've been a bit more involved in the fandom in recent years uh, through Reddit and more recently became a moderator over at Radio Westeros' Discord server, which is actually how mm-hmm. we became acquainted. So uh, thank you so much to Yokoi and Lady Gwyn for that. Mm. Yeah, so uh, in general, I'm uh, probably no surprise to you guys, but I'm a, a big fantasy nerd. Uh, more notably, I would say some of my favorite authors besides George R. R. Martin would be Patrick Rothfuss or Brandon Sanderson. Most recently just finished a full reread of Stormlight Archives to celebrate the fourth book coming out. I also play a fair amount of tabletop roleplay games. Most recently, it's been a lot of fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. I'm currently DMing two campaigns right now. So uh, I could really go on and on about that, but I'm trying to uh, mm. to be brief because there'll be more time for that later. Mm. Uh, by day, I work as a software consultant, uh, which is a pretty great gig. I work from home with my dogs around all the time. It's wonderful. By night, I also am a freelance wig and makeup artist, uh, working primarily with community theaters in my area here in Michigan. Uh, I also work uh, with cosplayers and do some of my own cosplays as well. Um, I'm actually, when I'm working on wigs, I'm often binging on a Song of Ice and Fire podcasts while I'm practicing Daenerys braids or... Um, attending to some of my many house plants or, or playing with my dogs. So that's uh, that's what I get up to. I'm sure you've really heard more than enough about me at this point. So honestly, I, I really can't think of a better way to really get to know me than to answer 100, yes, 100 questions about the winds of winter. You'll be hearing a lot from both of us about our opinions, hopes, and theories for the next book. And through that, I expect you'll learn plenty about me in the process. So uh, let's get on with that, shall we? Yeah, yeah, we definitely should. Although I must say, well, yeah, you've just pointed out a lot of similarities we have there. And I think I was between season three and four when I discovered the show. And uh, I also work at home with my dog, so we're pretty uh, linked up already. But something I didn't know, Patrick Rothfuss. Well, see, we've been speaking a whole bunch in the run-up to this episode, and I'm pretty sure that's not come up yet. So that's a that's a whole big tangent we could tumble down if we're not careful. We'll have to watch ourselves. It just so happened uh, I randomly reread the first few chapters of Name of the Wind last week, just because I fancied it. So yeah, we could definitely uh, dive into that. Maybe that's a future patron-only episode in the making, possibly. Don't tempt me. Yeah, we'll have to really be uh, strict of ourselves. But speaking of, you say there that uh, we'll have more time to get to know you a bit more, and we definitely will, because to mark Emily's joining us and to give all you listeners a bit of extra opportunity to get to know her, we're actually going to put out two extra episodes that will achieve just that. Firstly, we're going to go back to our roots a bit. You all know we used to do guest interviews with people like Davos Fingers and Girls Gone Cannon and Shakes of Thrones and several other wonderful guests. And we're going to do the exact same thing with Emily. We're going to have a kind of interview style podcast. Obviously, give us a great opportunity to get to know you more, Emily. And well, now we're going to have to add some Patrick Rothfuss talk in there as well. And uh, that episode, is that's going to be a treat for patrons only as a just as a thank you for their generosity. So if you would like to get to know our new co-host or part-time coast or again however we want to put it a bit better maybe you do want to look at our patreon page and you can send in some questions as well and i might be able to get to them so that's one that's one option we've got the other one we're going to do well it's another retro option because we're going to have some fun we're going to break the ice a bit and have emily come on for a sporkle spectacular we're going to have some light-hearted fun we're going to go head-to-head over the opening sentences for the storm of swords chapters 
Oh boy, I am a bit competitive, so that could be dangerous. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I've missed the Sporkle Spectacles. If people don't know what I'm on about, you can go back in the feed. You can find them somewhere. I think the last one probably was about a year ago now because Scraps and Scrolls demands so much of us, but they're, they're pretty fun. We've had some great guests on for those as well. And that one will also come out for patrons first, obviously, but that one will be made available to the public at some point. So we're really going to mark this big occasion of Emily joining us here on the aisle with a bang. So... Emily mentioned it there, and I'm assuming you've all read the episode title by this point. You know why we're here. This is the first of our 100 questions on the Winds of Winter series, hence why we've saved it for episode 100. I think they call that synergy, if I've listened to Jack Donaghy enough. A brand new set of episodes this is, to go along with Scraps and Scrolls. It's part of our new era, like I say. It's going to come along with Scraps and Screens, which is our Game of Thrones rewatch that, Emily, you'll hopefully be free to join in with every now and then. That certainly is the hope, as best as schedule allows. Uh, I actually recently rewatched season one, and uh, my mind was pretty blown by some of the subtle foreshadowing, so I certainly have thoughts to share. Oh yes, plenty of thoughts to share. I mentioned the other day I've just been clicking onto random scenes from season eight and just stopped what I'm doing and moved to the edge of my seat. So yeah, hopefully we'll get you on for that as well, whenever that's uh, possible. But what we've got here today, it's something we've been looking forward to for a while now. Hopefully everyone out there has heard or seen at least one of the announcement episodes. I've announced it, it seems like five times in my head. But you'll know the basic premise. I think it's fairly self-explanatory, but we'll still give you some extra details before we get going here. Although first, let's just clean up on the notices, because yes, I, I couldn't resist. I had to rush through and introduce Emily. I could not wait. That just wasn't going to happen. So depending on when you're listening to this, not quite sure when we'll get it out, but we should be around the Elaine episode. That should be with you now for Scraps and Scroll, the Winds of Winter preview chapter, Elaine 1. That's a very, very long chapter, as Sansa's tend to be. And it's been a long, long time since we've actually been able to talk about Sansa, as Emily just mentioned in intro there's a lot going up in the veil we might get to talk about that later today as well we've got peter fucking baelish coming back we've got tawny talk we've got bunches so i hope you've been liking that one if you have heard it or if you're about to listen to it whichever one suits you after that will be fion one that's our lone stop in the north out of these preview chapters and that's one of the more involved with the dance plot i'd say so that should be another doozy and again that'll be with you pretty soon we're going to be getting back into the regular swing of things for scraps and scrolls to go along with these at these episodes and of course we can't go any further without thanking our wonderful wonderful patrons here in episode 100 of all episodes and well since it is a special occasion emily would you like to do the honors and read out our special jade branches here give our shout outs today i would love to uh so special thanks to lomas knight rider survivor of the yeen sleepover grizzly meadows glenn t aegon the sixth Lord Commander Namian Darklin, Kate M, and of course, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Superb. You're now officially part of the crew. I'm sure everyone enjoyed that way, way more than I've ever done it. I certainly did. But I would also, uh, to go along with those shouts, give a special nod to Brandy T, who's another one of our beloved patrons. Probably the patron I hear from the most, if I'm honest. We've had many, many long email conversations. I'd feel more than comfortable calling her a friend. And she's unfortunately come under some ill health of late. So wishing her all the best. She's over in the States as well. Wishing her all the best and a speedy recovery. And maybe, hopefully, this episode could provide a bit of comfort or relief or something of, of that nature. So Brandy T, we're, we're wishing you the best absolutely the best to you yeah definitely 
Okay, so then, I, I think, uh, yeah, let's get into the specifics of this episode. Emily, do you want to remind us of what we're what we're really doing here? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as the title suggests, we're answering 100 questions about basically anything and everything, the winds of winter. Some of our questions will be large, expansive questions with lots of complex possibilities, important outcomes on the plot. Some will be simpler, more specific ones. Uh, we'll probably have some theories, some personal favorites or opinions. And uh, yeah, I mean, if I'm involved, I'm, I'm guessing there'll be a few funny ones as well. So <laughs> uh, we'll be doing them over a few coming episodes uh, today. I think we're we're aiming for about 10 to see how long that takes and kind of get the pacing down. But uh, we'll be doing as many episodes as it takes to get to that 100 question mark. Now, uh, I want to remind everybody that uh, we would absolutely love as many of these questions to come from you listeners. Uh, you've been great so far with your suggestions. So if you can think of anything and would like to uh, sh- have a shout out on the show or send them anonymously, either way, uh, you can email us at isleoffacespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can, of course, tweet at Joe or send a message on Patreon, um, you know, get at us on Discord, however <laughs> however you'd like to reach us. Maybe send a raven, I don't know. Yeah, ravens are preferred, to be honest, but if you can't find a raven, do one of those other more boring options. But yeah, that's 100% correct. We've got, obviously, we've got loads of questions already, some that I've written, some that Emily's written, and we've got more than a few that you've already sent in, so thank you for all of that. With some of your own suggestions, we're going to be including those wherever possible. Don't worry if you don't hear yours right away on this episode we've got a hundred spots to fill so chances are we're probably going to get to yours at some point so do send them in include a name if you fancy and even include where you're speaking to us from that's always interesting to see how far we're reaching and we'll both have a go at answering and i'll be straight up before we get going here this is hardly an original idea from me no 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 i've stolen it from no dunks my favorite podcast of all time i've mentioned it plenty of times here on the other faces and they do this kind of thing every year before the nba season starts so all i've done is just transferred their style over to a song of ice and fire and winds of winter and you might see some of that particular style present in some of the questions so yeah i just want to give a nod to them before we start and as emily said we're going to have all sorts just to preview it for you here we will have big big sprawling questions like who will be the first pov death that's one coming up today that could there's a lot we could talk about i mean you could do a whole episode on that question if you really wanted to we'll try and resist but you never know how far it'll go and then we'll have the slightly more relaxed like who's going to have the cringiest sex scene this time around or i don't know how many how many nipple breastplates are we going to see it could be anyone's guess the the bets will have to come in Everything in between those as well. We really are going to cover everything. We've got 100 questions. I don't think we're going to run out because there's a lot we want to know about the winds of winter. And I think that's probably enough intro. So, Emily, let me say welcome and thank you once more. I think we probably best, best start chipping away at this big old pile of winds questions. Let's get going. Let's do it. All right. Well, would you like to uh, lead us off with our first question? I suppose I will. Okay, everybody, this is, if you're playing along at home, if you've got a massive wad of paper you're going to be writing these down on, this is question number one of 100. What will Littlefinger do in Winds of Winter? And could he be the last villain like Saruman in Lord of the Rings and the Scouring of the Shire? And I'm glad to say that our first question is one sent in by a listener. I'm not as happy to say that I'm probably going to struggle with the name, but I will try my best. I'm going to assume you're Scandinavian here, so do bear with me. But I believe this is from Yuha Alexi Yavanpa, as sent that in via Twitter. I do apologise if I've absolutely butchered your name, but I do appreciate the question either way. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is a great question. I was really excited when I saw this one. So uh, as for the first part of the question, now, Joe, you've covered this pretty well uh, on the aisle already, so I won't deep dive too far into Littlefinger's schemes. Do you want to give us a little summary? Yeah, I was quite happy that this is our first question as well, because if there's, uh, well, I've been told if there is a uh, a saying or something we're ever going to put on a t-shirt, it's the phrase Peter fucking Baelish. So it's good to have him crop up in the middle so that I can get all riled up and shouty and sweary <laughs> just to set the tone for everything else. I would buy that t-shirt. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we'll do it one day. So depending on when you're listening to this, you might have already heard me talking quite a bit about Baelish and his potential plan, seeing as, like I said, we've just covered a lane over in Scraps and Scrolls. So I'm not going to repeat myself too much here, but I will give you just a brief answer, a brief little summary here. We know his immediate plans at the very least. He's got this very clever tourney idea that's going to play on the mindset of the Knights of the Vale. They've been bored, they've been restless. Now he's going to give them this tourney to rile them up and get them on side. And he's generally going to use it as an opportunity to schmooze and basically charm people and, yes, sign more people onto his team. At the same time, it's also a great ruse to get Harry the heir close to Sansa so he can kick off his, his marriage contract idea that we know he has from the end of Feast. And assumedly, then later on, he'll reveal his Vale North Riverlands hybrid in like a weird reversal of sovereign ambitions, really. And for that to all take effect, we also know he's finally planning to actually bump off Sweet Robin, Robert Aaron. And even more worryingly, Sansa knows about that as well. But, well, we're here to talk about Peter fucking Baelish right now, so we'll save Sansa for later. I think we all know that whatever Peter Baelish does in this book, it's going to be horrible because that's what he does. He doesn't do nice things. He doesn't even do neutral things. He does absolutely horrible, despicable things. For his personal life, I predict him trying to have his cake and eat it too. I think he's going to continue to try and empower Sansa and turn her into his like schemer apprentice, his Sith apprentice, if you really want to call it that. Yeah, he's also going to try and keep her under wing and reliant and still like within his grasp. He doesn't want her getting too good because then she won't need him anymore. So he's got to try and kind of have a balancing act in this book, I think. Possibly this is where his downfall will come, we can hope, can't we? But I definitely foresee a situation where he can no longer help himself. We've seen his restraint disgustingly loosened already in Feast, I think we can expect more of that. Now, politically, I think he might be actually preparing to declare independence from the Iron Throne. He's setting up the Brotherhood of Winged Knights, which is a fancy way of saying a Kingsguard. He's going to play on the Vale's Lords of uh, their sense of pomposity. We've got those weird um, tapestries that he's brought over as well. He's going to take advantage of the Vale's natural isolationism, but he's also going to have at least links to the North and Rivlands as well. So that's, well, maybe that's a far off idea, but it's possible. And I do also think maybe we could see him and Sansa moving north within winds, maybe at the end, to put Sansa's claim in. I'd really like that to be what Stannis must face post-battle, and likely as it is. But I do believe Baelish's end will come at Winterfell. And if it does, then I cannot wait. So, Emily, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, when he has his cake and eat it, eats it too, is that going to be lemon cake? It's going to have to be. Funnily enough, my wife made lemon cakes last week for her birthday. So I, I can tell you, I'm now lemon cake expert. So if anyone has questions <laughs> on that, you only need to ask me. Do not ask my dog, who also stole one yesterday morning when neither of us were looking. She was not supposed to have lemon cakes. I think this is some weird Isle of Faces synergy because I also made lemon cake this last weekend. Um, oh, this is too freaky. I think we should stop recording. Yeah, yeah we're done. <laughs> Pack it yeah. in. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, so... Getting back to the question, I do want to thank our 
contributor here for drawing this comparison between Littlefinger and Saruman. Uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, I must interrupt. You can't just say contributor. If I have to have a go at the name, you must have a go at the name as well. <laughs> um. All right. <laughs> Cut out all this weird put you vamping I'm doing right now. <laughs> I'm just going to say their Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Then we've got both bases covered. So uh, I really want to thank... Our contributor here, uh, Yarvinpa Alexi, on Twitter for drawing this comparison nice. between Littlefinger and Saruman. Uh, on the surface, it might not like seem immediately obvious how similar they are. Um, you know, they both seek power and are villains, of course, but they have starkly contrasting motivations for it. You know, Saruman kind of came into his quest for power by trying to study the dark arts. Uh, you know, originally Saruman the White, uh, corrupted by his his quest for knowledge and power. Whereas, uh, you know, Peter Baelish is completely motivated by spite and revenge for, you know, the wrongs that he feels were done to him in his past. Uh, not only that, but Saruman like uses magic of course uh you know not only does he use it but that's what drove him to that darkness baelish of course on the other hand uh discounts the mystical uh admittedly easier to do in a lower magic setting like a song of ice and fire but um you know there's there's obviously some big differences there i don't see peter baelish like wandering around in a bunch of white robes i think that would be a little disturbing. Uh, but both are extremely intelligent and cunning villains, which allows them to stick around in the story quite a bit longer than some of the villains that we've seen already, you know, meet their downfall. I think, you know, that that comes back to that original question. Uh, I think we'll we'll have something thematically similar to a scouring of the Shire, uh, simply because Martin has already proven that he wants to show the horrors of war and conflict and violence. Um, I, I think there are actually interview quotes of him saying that that is a part he particularly enjoyed about Lord of the Rings because of the realism behind it. So um, as far as Baelish's role in that, I'm not so sure. I tend to agree with you, Sir Buckley, uh, that we you know, probably will see his end coming a little sooner than that. Of course, the machinations that he sets in place uh, may long outlive him. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I think yeah, so much of that really depends on Sansa and how she'll assert her agency in the coming books. Yeah, that's a, a really good point, actually. I'd not thought of that. I, mean, I guess Littlefinger's evil is definitely not going to end with Littlefinger's death. The, his oily, corrosive touch is going to last for decades after he's gone. On a personal level, on a national level, yeah, I'd not thought. Goodness, on an economic level as well. Yeah, very, very true. Very, very true. And, and that's just the stuff we've seen. I mean, as we're dealing with here, there's probably a lot more coming just yet. Now, everybody that listens will know I do not know the Lord of the Rings books all so well, uh, definitely not as well as you, so that's really interesting to hear those those details. I do know the basics. Um, for instance, I know that Saruman is a bit of a dick, and I know that Peter Baelish is a massive dick, so yes, that all makes sense to me. I must agree with you there. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Saruman, he's the one who burns the trees, is that right? Uh, yeah, so yeah, uh, Saruman does burn the trees. I think a big part of you know what he's meant to symbolize is like the industrialization or the modernization hmm. um, of that world, which I think kind of fits in with Peter Baelish in a way because you know he discounts the mystical. He's toying with the economy and pulling all these strings and uh, thinking he's more clever than some of these you know simple lords like Ned Stark. So. He's definitely not a, a caretaker of the land, is he? He's not a, a caretaker of the books, maybe. Caretaker of himself, yes. But the land, either geographical or social, no, not so much. And, that's, and he's in a position now where he should be, technically. He's supposed to own the Riverlands. But either way, if, 
Well, Saruman, like I say, he burns the trees. That makes him enemy number one here in the Isle. We do not like that. You can't be on the Isle of Faces and be burning trees. We don't like Pierre Baelish, so yes, I think this comparison becomes all the stronger the further we go. And talking about the Riverlands, well, we've already kind of seen a, a scourge in their burning, and you could say that Peter's already brought that about by inciting the war in the first place, so we can make that connection there as well. Plus, like I say, he's turned a blind eye, he really doesn't care. But then again, I suppose our version of the Shire in terms of that homely feeling is the North, or more specifically Winterfell. And I've said plenty of times before that I can definitely see Littlefinger meeting his end there. I won't go all into that and why I think that now. I've said it enough times before, but I think that definitely makes sense. So yeah, I really like this comparison, Emily. I think that, um, and also you have as well for the question. So yeah, brilliant thank first you so question. Much. I think we uh, hit the ground running. Yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we're, we're not starting with the easy ones, so. <laughs> no, no, very. Are there any easy ones? I don't know if there are. I, I think they're know. all different. tried to slip one way. in. Uh, you might have taken it back out. I don't know. <laughs> well, either way, that's one in the books. Speaking of, uh, you know, not so easy questions, you want to queue up our next mm. one? Yeah, let's go. Let's hit. We've still got 99 to go. We should probably move it pretty fast. <laughs> number two, then. Question number two. Who will be the first POV death? And this question lovingly comes from yoke boy of radio westeros as if i need to tell you so that's great we'd love to have yoke boy asking us some questions that's brilliant yes thank you so much for this question yoke boy um goodness my off the cuff answer for this is uh first pov death and wins probably the prologue character right um <laughs> no i'm just joking <laughs> cheating no we can't have that uh yeah no I, I can't give joke answers i gotta give a real answer um, so I think it really comes down to whether you think the Forsaken sample chapter stays in, where that's going to land, and what might happen in, you know, in other chapters or other POVs before that. Personally, for me, there aren't many other POVs that are high on my list of early in wins deaths. Um, I did do a little research on this one. I, I, I wanted to dig in and uh, found a really interesting post from Reddit user Cat who wrote this great post about uh, Danny's House of the Undying Vision potentially having a reference to Aaron Greyjoy. So this is something that, you know, in the past we'd seen attributed to many other characters, but the, the line of the prophecy reads, a corpse stood at the prow of the ship, eyes bright in his dead face, gray lips smiling sadly. So we of course know that that Aaron is still alive at the end of the Forsaken, but he's it's dark. He's thinking about his own death and the death of uh, you know his companions. Uh, he expects it. He seems almost resigned and ready for it. So to me, he's he's one who's high on my list of of potential first POV deaths. Yeah, I don't think we can argue with that choice, especially with that evidence you just supplied. There, corpse stood at the prow of the ship doesn't get too much more obvious than that so and i can't disagree with you either because well he gets my vote because if there is a pov that i hate as a person and also just really hate to read their chapters it is that guy so i'm with you on both counts i think it's perfectly logical and possible and i really hope it's true <laughs> uh, i could i'd be quite happy with air on going unfortunately even if it is via euron and in this really dark way but yeah his imagery as a corpse and where they where we think they're going anyway and what they're about to get up to doesn't look great for him so that's a really really good option from you there and i think that also has a really good chance to be early on as well and um, we'll probably come to some more old town questions in later episodes mm -hmm. but beyond that yoke boy has given us a bit of a hard one early on here because 
Well, I think if you ask people straight off the top of their heads, they just got a, like a really quick one word answer. You'd probably hear the name Aereo Hotar a lot because he seems like the most expendable or the one that we care about the least, the least developed. But he can't really be early on, I don't think, because of where he is geographically. If he does go, then we have like zero eyes for the South or Dawn. That's not to say it can't happen. We could have one Aereo chapter and then he fights Darkstar and dies or something. But I don't think it's likely. And that's something I've spoken about on Radio Westeros's live stream before. I just don't think it's likely because then we're cutting off like a whole big chunk of the plot that George has spent a lot of time recently building up. So uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be Aereo, but who else do you think maybe? Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that point. I think that, yeah, he is... Not quite as far developed, but we kind of need his eyes at the moment. Or at least I think we do. We'll see what, what story George wants to tell. He is the watcher, after yes, all. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm trying to think, given kind of what you said about the geography there, of where we have several POV characters kind of convalescing in a similar area and where, you know, maybe they can afford to lose one uh, either by mm. them relocating or or potentially being the next POV death. So uh, looking at that, I feel like the North is getting pretty saturated. We've got Asha, Theon, Davos, Melisandre, Bran, and we had John. I think most of us expect him to be revived. We'll see if he continues as a POV character, but um, I think it's likely going to be one of them. To me, I would say of that list, Asha or Theon feels particularly vulnerable for a few reasons. One, they're in the same place now uh, with Stannis and his army, many of whom are very ready to feed someone to the flames. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because on the opening pages of this book, even though those guys are all, yes, technically in the north, they're really, really far spread out. But that's just the opening. You could easily see they could literally all be in the same building before the book is out or halfway through or something like that. So, yeah, I think you're right. The north is probably a good place to look for saturation. Uh, I I think I agree that Fionn is probably the one that I would give as my official answer. I'd put the most money on to die at some point. Now, when that's going to happen, it's really anyone's guess, of course. All these POVs, we, we really have no idea. But I could see Fionn being very soon after the Battle of Winterfell, or possibly even before. On the flip side, yes, Asha could die in battle, but I don't like to entertain that. I don't like to give George ideas because I really don't want Asha to die. And I don't think we would lose both because then we might be getting into trouble again in terms of whose eyes we've got for this for this uh, big battle of ice. So if I had to choose, I would say Fionn as the most likely early on. For some further outside bets, well, I'm not convinced that either Jamie or Brienne they could die and then be brought back as some form of like ultimate vengeance from Stoneheart. She could try to replicate the, the evil, the suffering that's been done unto her, unto them. That could happen very early on. I find it very, very difficult to theorise what's going to happen actually with Stoneheart and Jamie and Brienne straight away. So that's one of the really hard ones and definitely one of the harder ones to place. But I could see that happening early on. If we want to talk battles, if we want to talk Battle of the Fire, then I think either Barristan or Victorian, they're decent choices, but you could easily argue me away from that because there's lots of ideas about what could happen after that battle. John Connington, I think he will probably die, but I would say definitely not first. I think if he is going to die, well, I think he is going to die, but that's probably later on. He's got a few too many things to get done first. Yeah, I agree. He's too busy to die right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we think back through the first five books and maybe that's a fool's errand because this is probably going to be quite a different book in terms of length and pacing and how much actually needs to get done but we've actually had very very few pov deaths especially ones that we're 
present for. We've really just had Quentin and that's kind of it. Like We were present for Catelyn, but she came back. We were present for John, but we think he's going to come back. We've seen others, but not through their eyes. We saw Ned, we saw Eris Oakheart, but it's not like it happens often. Now, obviously, that probably is going to change in wins because George assumedly needs to start cutting down fairly quickly, but probably not particularly early on. But then again, what do I know? Maybe he wants to come out of a bang. Maybe we do lose one early in one of the big battles. Maybe he does want to make a big mark earlier in the book. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I think Catelyn would be the earliest one. I'm not sure what, maybe Aerys as well. I'm not sure what point in Feast that is. That's probably about well, halfway Ned through. as well. Yeah, so Ned, he must be, what, like three quarters away through Game of Thrones? Roughly. Yeah, so I think probably Catelyn or... Aeris would be early on. I could easily see that being beaten, to be fair. We just don't know. Yoke Boy, he's thrown us a curveball straight away, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, and actually, I, I want to point out um, that we had several similar questions to this one uh, from other listeners, such as James P. So mm. I, I just want to take this moment and kind of address that if we get a lot of similar questions, we're going to do our best to kind of consolidate them into... Um, one overarching question that asks all of the, the little nitty gritty details uh, so that we don't have too much overlap. A hundred questions is a lot. I'm sure we'll kind of tread some of the same ground a few times, but doing our best to kind of not keep you too bored with with repeats. Yeah, we definitely don't want to be repeating ourselves. And I mean, we're not short of material. We're not short of questions. So we're probably <laughs> not going to have to do it too much. People obviously have shared areas of interest. So we will have some crossover at some point. But we also want to make sure we kind of cover all bases. We don't want to do 10 questions on King's Landing and then realize that we haven't spoken about the Stormlands, for instance. But luckily, I think we're pretty set. We yeah. Looking at it so far, we've got a nice wide range. So I think we're okay. Yeah, I think you'll see as we just even move through this episode that we're bouncing all over Westeros, maybe even a little bit into Essa. So, um, yeah, enjoy the ride. Um, I... Yeah, we really are going to be peeing here, there and everywhere. <laughs> Question number three. This one comes again from a listener. So thank we've had three listener questions to start off. So this is really showing you already before we've even started the, the level of interaction we're already having here. So thank you, everyone. This comes from Kurt, who is emailing in from Latvia. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Didn't know we had listeners in Latvia. I probably should have checked, but uh, that's that's pretty cool. So thank you, Kurt. And the question is, is Mira Reed alive? Well, talk about taking it dark early on. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, my gut says yes. Um, I think the text is obviously very clearly pointing to Jojen's demise. I mean, we all know there's tons of theories out there about Jojen that I'm not going to get into. But I mean, the text is overwhelmingly clear that he expects to die. He expects that this is the end of the road. But uh, as far as his older sister is concerned, her part of the story doesn't feel finished to me. Bran's feelings towards Mira are being explored uh, throughout Bran 3 in A Dance with Dragons, and, and much sooner than that, of course. But, uh, you know, up until the last Bran chapter, uh, he's he's really still feeling connected to her, still trying to explore those feelings. And uh, so now that he's a bit more um, stuck in one place, he's starting to kind of use his circumstances as justification to enter Hodor's mind to, you know, follow along with Mira. He contemplates 
uh, if only I could slip into Hodor's skin and and hold her or hug her or comfort her, um, you know, and to to him that feels very sweet and and he, you know it, it's so tragic to read about, but he's really thinking about using Hodor in a really gruesome manner here as a way to stay close to her. You know, the final time that we that we see these two characters on the same page, uh, he's pondering this dilemma when Mira leaves the room distraught about Jojen. So to me, that doesn't feel finished. I feel like there's more to explore here. What do you think? Well, actually, an idea has just popped into my head now, this listening to your cool answer there. So, like you said, that Bran's stuck in one place, and like, so like he's got to face it at some point. But then again, so like that's physically, now he's finally, they've been on this long journey, now they're in this one uh, rooted place. But then, whatever you want to call it, spiritually or like metaphysically, he also has this other like escape. Like he's got his own, uh, what's it called on Star Trek? The holodeck. He's got that basically. So he can always escape through the weirwoods and via Bloodraven. And I'm wondering if if we're always going to get a kind of like addiction storyline at some point and like Bran's going to be too into looking into the past. He's going to like all these warnings that Jojen has given him since the beginning of like, don't spend too long in your wolf. Don't spend too much time warging or you'll lose yourself. I wonder if now that Jojen assumedly is gone, we're going to see Bran kind of fall into that because well, you, you, you would, <laughs> you, yeah. you would spend all of your time looking through all of recorded history and seeing your family again that's perfectly understandable i would do that and this is like an eight-year-old kid we're talking about so i wonder if we're gonna have mira kind of being the the voice the the anchor of being like bran please don't go back in please stay and talk to me for a bit and well i can just envision the scene of uh, like bran ignoring her mira just being left alone in this dark cave oh i don't want to think about it because yeah. yes, I do agree her story does not feel finished. Although I do feel legally obliged every time Mira comes out to point out, as I have done on Scraps and Scrolls several times, that we don't actually know if she's alive or not. Hence how I'm assuming this question came about. As you say, the last time that Bran saw her, he also saw Jojen. Now, Jojen is gone, and so is Mira. When he came back out of his last like vision walk, they were both not there. So it is possible that she's been killed as well she does share blood with Jojen after all maybe she's in that paste or perhaps she died trying to protect Jojen when the children dragged him off that's another terrible terrible image I really don't want to imagine but ultimately I'm just playing devil's advocate there because I think we're in agreement she's not done yet certainly I hope she's not because I do love Mira she's one of my favorites both of these read kids actually really really like thinking on their they've got a really unique story in A Song of Ice and Fire where they're, they're just tools to get the like the hero somewhere but they know it or at least Jojen does and he tells Mira and yet they do it anyway and then like that sounds all very good and noble but then they actually have to face the reality of it when they get there and it's not so easy it's, it's really fascinating to me yeah they, they we're now at the part well beyond the happily ever after of the story for them oh yeah which I think is where like, like you were saying about Lord of the Rings that's where George likes to uh, kind of extend his extend his view and look past the the finish line to what comes after so yeah that, that's a quite good connection in terms of what Mira will get up to well I think there's plenty of people who've said about Dark Sister and Mira finding or getting a hold of that that would be cool I think you're right she's ultimately going to be used in the same vein as Hodor as a way to show how Bran is unknowingly or kind of knowingly going down the wrong path we know he is abusing Hodor and we know that he's aware that it's wrong now he, he's not quite old enough to process the true weight of that and all those kind of things but he, he does know and he's 
still continuing to do it. So I think that is important to remember. So yeah, I think Mira probably has to be alive to be that moral sounding board. If she is dead, and we assume Jojen is too, then that only leaves Hodor at the moment to react to what Bran's doing or what he's becoming, and Hodor can't really. Plus, we have had it confirmed by George and other people that some version of Hold the Door that we saw in Game of Thrones is coming. So Bran's going to need someone to get him out of the cave and go with him. I guess there is the possibility of someone else joining them in the cave. I, I could see maybe Benjamin popping up or even Cold Hands returning outside, but it's more likely to be Mira. To be honest, I think the opening of Winds is going to be pretty painful for Mira either way. Either she's aware of what happened to Jojen and is going out of her mind with grief about that or trying to get Bran out or cut down the children or who knows. Or much worse, in my mind, she doesn't know and she goes on this oh, this tragic search for him through this deep, dark, endless cave with all of its evil and weird rooms and everything like that not admitting to herself what she probably suspects has really happened and that will be very very hard to read if we actually get that because like i say mira is one of the purest we get in the series she's gone on this whole journey just on faith she didn't have any superpowers of looking into the future she just listened to her brother and her friend and she went along with it and now she's going to find out that that whole journey led to her brother's death apparently her charge her hero has become this abusive wizard kid before uh, being led down this dark path it really could be pretty horrible so i don't know does she maybe she incites something to get bran out maybe she persuades him or does something to get them kicked out i don't know maybe she fights against the children of the forest maybe it does all go very 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 dark in bran trying to comfort her and control emotions and i mean we really don't want to see a, a repeat of varamir's prologue or anything like that i hope we don't forget to that point i hope not but, but we don't really know no we can only hope that but let's just focus on the positive yes she probably is alive kurt so uh, we'll just take that for now because we definitely do want to see more of mira absolutely absolutely so uh on to question four this one's actually from you but i'm gonna read it just to switch things up a little bit go for it yeah so which upcoming or expected newbie do you think will play the biggest role in wins uh in other words who do you think will be the rookie of the year yeah see i told you i was just gonna be stealing questions from no dunks this is definitely one of them rookie of the year who is the person maybe we've seen them very very briefly and we're gonna they're gonna have a bigger role or maybe we just know that they're coming and we haven't actually seen them on page yet which is the one i'm gonna run with i, I am bringing him up for a second time already but i think it's gonna be Harry the heir for me annoying as that name is Harold Harding we could call him for pretty much all of those reasons that I mentioned earlier he's going to be the focus of Sansa's first like lone unfortunately very very creepy mission to kind of woo him or sway him or whatever she's going to have to do we get quite a bit of that in the Elaine chapter that we've covered recently but there's probably going to be more to come as we get this tournament and we get this veil storyline that's so important to everyone now, assuming that that goes well with Sansa and assuming that Sweet Robin does get bumped off, then he's going to become the new Lord of the Vale and he's going to have a newly formed Kingsguard waiting for him. He's going to have a power player pulling his strings in Peter Baelish. He's going to find himself having suddenly this beautiful young bride who will just so happen to be revealed as an heir herself to a kingdom that's been allied to the Vale through the last generation and the war in the North. So it can be in his name that the Knights of the Vale, these knights that we've been waiting for right since the beginning of the series, five books ago, they can finally ride out and start playing the game and it'll be because of him. So, okay, we all know that it'll actually be Sansa or Littlefinger that are 
going to kind of be the brains behind it or the engines behind it. But symbolically and politically and to everyone else, this guy, Harry, who we've not met, he can end up being a really major player on the public board. So yeah, I think he's going to be very, very important as the Vale gets to finally join in with everyone. And I don't discount the chance of a return from the clansmen either, especially if Tyrion comes back ashore. I think the Vale's going to have probably a lot more than it expects to deal with. So Harry, he's going to be right in the middle of that. Yeah, of course, our focus is on Sansa. Yeah, of course, we're going to be looking at Peter Baelish. But Harry, he's really the kind of the centre of the plot right now at the beginning. So I'm looking forward to seeing just how far George takes us with that. But Emily, what about you? Yeah, uh, so my pick for Rookie of the Year is probably Marwyn the Mage. Um, I, maybe it's a little unfair to call him a newbie, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> because no, we'll give a pat. He's on like two pages. Yeah, we'll give him a pat. exactly. You know, we, we've not really seen much of him on page until very late and very briefly in A Feast for Crows. Uh, of course, before that, we've been given a few scraps of information about him in the earlier books. It's not really until Samwell 5 and Feast that we actually meet the Archmaester. He tells Sam that he's going to find Daenerys via the Cinnamon Wind, hoping to reach her before anyone else from the Citadel gets there. Uh, his final bit of advice to Samwell is, say nothing of prophecies or dragons unless you fancy poison in your porridge. So we've had this slow buildup of interesting tidbits about Marwyn from the likes of some really interesting minor characters, uh, Miri Mazdur, Leo Tyrell, in the Pate prologue, uh, Kyburn, you know. Then we finally meet the man at the end of Feast and he leaps into action. He's heading straight to the heart of the conflict in Slaver's Bay. From what he tells Samwell and Alaris, he intends to join her in Aemon's place, which is pretty significant and substantial given not only Aemon's extensive knowledge, but his blood connection to Daenerys. So the kind of lore drops that I think we can get from a character like Archmaester Marwyn already have me so excited for more of him. I think unless something shocking befalls him en route to Danny, or at least her contingency in Slaver's Bay, we can expect to see him become very influential in terms of the Battle of Fire, or more importantly, Daenerys and her dragon's path to Westeros. That's a great pick. Yeah, I definitely think, well, as you say, I think it's easy money to say he's going to be very, very influential when he gets there. I think we do all expect him to get there. I know he hasn't quite popped up just yet, but he could be right around the corner. He could be with Volantis or whoever else is coming towards the Marine there. He's got to be this huge, huge influence on Daenerys, I think, and pointing her back in the direction that we want to see. He's got this very, very unique worldview because, yes, he is from the Citadel, but he's not like the other maesters. And then we can... Well, we could go on for hours about the possibilities of what he knows in terms of everything going on at the Citadel and what the Maester's plans are. So yeah, he's got loads to unpack and he's going to unpack it around not just Danny, but other really, really, really important characters in Tyrion or who knows what how he interacts with Makaro, even Barristan or the Greyjoys as well with Victarion. So absolutely. Yeah, that's a great pick. Well done there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, moving on. On to question five. Uh, so, as Ario Hota says, somebody always tells. Who do you think will become a snitch during the Winds of Winter? Yeah, this is, I had trouble with this one, I must admit. This is difficult. Probably because, I mean, we've all read these books. We know probably just about anyone could become a snitch and it wouldn't be like a massive surprise at this point but i think people's uh, most common answer would maybe become barristan because we're already talk lots of people are talking about him switching sides and turning his cloak and going over to Aegon, and maybe that includes some i don't know if snitching is quite the word in that case but you know giving information telling something important he could give away quite a lot about daenerys if he really wanted to 
I really hope that doesn't happen, but I definitely think it could. All right. Yeah, I love the pick of Barristan. Uh, I think, you know, like you said, a lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people are expecting it. Yeah, I, snitch probably isn't the right word. But, uh, you know, I think if he does change sides, there's going to be some information shared as part of that. So um, well done there. As for my pick, I went with a bit of a dark horse pick, I think. But I could actually, I think we could actually see Penny accidentally sharing some sensitive information, either to Tyrion or, or maybe about Tyrion. I think I'm thinking probably to Tyrion. Now, I don't think she would intend to be a snitch or intend to do something like this, but I think that there are a lot of things that need to take place in and around the Battle of Fire to get some of these POV characters together and or headed towards Westeros again. You know, the, the Great Myrny's Knot needs to be untangled. Uh, so there's a need within the narrative for information and plot hooks to be unveiled, and that's often done through, you know, secondary tertiary characters. I also think of Penny kind of in a similar manner to Sansa uh, in A Game of Thrones when she unwittingly tells Cersei of Ned's plans. Both characters are naive. Uh, they're some level of unaware about the peril that they're in. I think Penny's eyes are opening to it now, but, um, you know, she's certainly never been in this situation before. And I think most importantly, and when I'm drawing this comparison, is they're both placing their trust in a Lannister who probably doesn't deserve it. You know, I think it would be kind of kind of heartbreaking to see Penny accidentally kind of, you know, step her foot where it doesn't belong by, by letting some tidbit slide. Uh, and I don't have any guesses about what that specifically would be at this point. But I, I could see her, you know, just in a casual conversation with Tyrion accidentally letting slip something that she saw that she didn't think anything of that, you know, maybe ends up being really important. I'm going to have to say that. That blows my mind. I can't believe I've never, even myself or heard anyone else, make that comparison between Penny and young Sansa before. That's brilliant. I, that fits so, so well in multiple layers, not just in, in this manner of secrets and then telling people stuff, but yeah, really, really fits well. So well done. I love that. That's kind of knocked my other rants out <laughs> of my head. Oh, the other one I thought of, I think there's there's probably a lot of smaller characters that will definitely see this just happening kind of everywhere in King's Landing as the new the new guys come into town, Aegon comes into town, and there's going to be like a rush to be like, okay, who can get in with the new boss quite quickly? Who can get in on the ground level? There's a lot of candidates, but definitely, definitely, I think one that could crop up, definitely be hurtful to one particular character is Tana Merriweather. She kind of disappeared appeared at the end of Feast. We're not quite sure what she's up to, but we're sure she's going to have some narrative purpose because George spent quite a lot of time building her up. And Cersei has requested for her to come back to the city. So that would be an interesting one to see how she interacts with Aegon and the Golden Company because, well, firstly, she's not from the Reach herself, so she's kind of loose on that anyway. But they've also got the friends in the Reach angle to begin with. We don't really know ever what side she's actually on, so maybe it is a tertiary side that we've not been thinking of. And she definitely has some secrets to share. Oh, yes, some very, very useful secrets so and that's just the ones we know about who knows who else she's been spying on or what she's got on the Tyrells that could be very very interesting that could be a cool way of getting Tyrell information across to us because we don't have Tyrell POVs so yeah I think there's lots of people you could say this for in King's Landing or Marine or probably Winterfell as well there's lots of these hot spots of politics going on but yeah that's the one I that's the needle I'm going to pick out the haystack for this one that's a great pick. Um, I, I really like all of these. I think, you know, we, we've been uncertain of Taina's true loyalty for a long time now. So I think 
she perfectly fits the role of snitching to someone about someone and maybe we'll see more about that there's a lot of snitching to be done that's like not present stuff either there's still loads like sansa again is obviously a good example she still knows a bunch about what happened in in king's landing with ned and stuff that characters who need to know don't know so there can be a lot of kind of built up snitching that we're going to see happen in winds as well yeah or i don't know maybe you can call the the truth about john snow's parentage is that snitching or is that just telling him we'll have to see <laughs> Yeah, I think some level of accidental or on-purpose betrayal is, is kind of what I was thinking of here. But uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, yeah, and yeah. you know, we're not even talking about the very low-hanging fruit of like Varys's little birds or you know spies who are literally designed and intended to very be true. snitches the whole time. We've got the kettle blacks. We've got several others. Um, but you all know about that, so we'll we'll leave it there. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, lots of these questions we're going to have are pretty much endless. They're, they're so, so open. And I can't remember if we actually mentioned this at the beginning, but if we haven't, I'll put it in here now. Do message in, not just with your questions, but your answers to these questions as well. Let us know what you think of our answers. Give us your answers. And, you know, maybe in future episodes, we can have a quick five minutes at the beginning if you've got a particular reply that stands out to us or something we didn't think of. So that'd be another great way to interact with everybody. So definitely note down these questions and give us uh, your answers, whether you agree or disagree or whatever you can come up with at home. Yeah, please do. Okay, so, well, we're already about halfway through. Yeah, question six, here we go. Yes, uh, question six then. This comes from another email, this time from Angela in Toronto. We're going all over the world today. We've got, what have we got? We've got Latvia, obviously Yoke Boy and yourself, you're over in the States. Now we've got Toronto. We're going to have to get one of those fill-in maps and scratch them off as we go. <laughs> but anyway, Angela's question is, what is a personal rivalry that you'd like to see come to a head in wins? That's a cool question. I like that question. I really like this question. In fact, I wrote down way too many answers for this, so please cut me off. <laughs> No such thing. We want loads of answers. <laughs> right. uh, so for me, I think the ultimate is definitely Tyrion versus Cersei. Um, I think we'll probably be waiting until A Dream of Spring to, you know, really get any conclusion on that. Um, you know, I think for now, I'm just going to be satisfied watching Cersei continue to try to find him and blunder about it. Unfortunately, very, very unfortunately, leaving a trail of dead dwarves behind her. Yeah, but I just really can't wait to see what happens with that, especially since, you know, we've got kind of dark Tyrion uh, <laughs> emerging. I, I'll admit, I have, I, I really need to get over my my inability to see him as a villain. <laughs> but I'm I'm very excited to see these two go head to head. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's probably would have been one of my first ways to think about this as well. Although I think there's going to be kind of like a triangle thing going on here. I'm not sure we'll get Tyrion versus Cersei without Jaime being in the works as well. I I wonder if that's going to be our big introduction to Castly Rock. Is that I don't know? Maybe Cersei flees there, and Jaime's not that far away. We know Tyrion's going to want to go there. Now the timing is okay to be worked out later but it would be cool if we did get to castle rock find the, the house that well, tywin didn't build but he certainly quite liked and we see the three rotting legs of his legacy kind of duke it out back at home the home of the lions that would be a very very cool setting to see all that go off and it it would be very very messy as you say and very very dark probably on all three counts i think we're in agreement between us that Jamie is the, the brightest of that three, but that doesn't mean he can't go dark very, very quickly if needs be. Certainly, there's a lot to unpack there. So that would be definitely one of the first places I was looking to as well. 
Yeah. I think a lot of my answers probably are going to be Cersei related. Just I think she makes such a great foil to so many characters. But I I really want to know what's going to go down between her and Marjorie moving forward. You know, I feel like for several books, they've been kind of dancing around each other, you know, avoiding an outright public rivalry, you know, due to the marriage alliances, due to the kind of the, the needs for those houses to stay tied together. It feels like in Feast, the gloves really came off. Marjorie now has clear evidence that Cersei tried to set her up. It's public enough now that she and the Tyrells may feel emboldened to act on that a little bit more than they have in the past. You know, she's got this new kind of unfettered access to Tommen, who is the only child Cersei has left close to her physically. And uh, I think we'll just have to see what things look like in the wake of the the dance epilogue to know for sure. Uh, But I'm certainly interested to see where this goes. Yeah, that's a good point. I probably haven't given enough attention in the past to Marjorie's, uh, like you say, knowing what Cersei has, has done and, and having her own kind of chip on her shoulder now and wanting to get back at Cersei. That's a good point. I've not thought of that before. Have you got any more? Oh, of course. <laughs> Um, this is just a quick answer here, but I would really love to see some fray on fray rivalries come to a head. There's so many of them, so many frays. They're jockeying for position in succession or wanting to butter up whoever they think is going to end up being the next ruler of the twins. So I think that could just get really interesting, especially given what's going on in the North. You know, I mean, what a way for, you know, the the Bolton's allies to really fall apart by kind of caving in on, on themselves a bit uh, with regards to the, the different fray factions. Yeah, I think that's, we're definitely getting that one, I think. Either kind of here or there, or we could be getting a whole bunch of fray on fray action. I mean, it's already started. We've already had the little and big Walder thing up in the north, as you say. Uh, I think there's plenty more personal rivalries that George has already set up. I forget the names because there's already a bunch of them, but whichever the dude was um, that we saw at River Run, like he's got that one that he hates that's back at the Twins. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure someone, someone will fill that in for me, but there's loads that could be happening there. So definitely, definitely definitely phrase everywhere yeah and and kind of on the other side of the 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 battle of ice up there we've got you know this camp of stannises uh you know camped outside winterfell you know not too far away and within that camp we've got queensmen and kingsmen and as the queensmen become more and more hungry for another sacrifice to the flames to you know get the show on the road get this battle over with finally have something good happen for stannis's army you know with their solution to that being of course just burn someone that's what you should do that'll fix it um i think we could see some minor character spats going on there um we've already seen a, a few of them kind of trade barbs around asha so I think that could be an interesting rivalry to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Rivalries between factions, that's, that's probably going to be quite a heavy thing at, at the beginning. Like you say, Queensmen and Kingsmen, we've got uh, like a dozen different factions up at Castle Black that are all going to be going off at each other. Same thing for Marine, even those that are on the same side, so you could say those are all rivalries. Let me throw a few more personal ones, kind of smaller ones at you. We've got Dark Star versus Ario. They, they've not really had a chance to gain a rivalry, but Dark Star has already eluded Ario, so that's kind of a, re- a revisit to a rivalry there, and a lot of people expect them to duel, so that could be one. Tommen versus Beats. <laughs> All right. So on to question seven. This one comes from our listener, Micah. What do you think Tarth will do about the Aegon situation? Selwyn likely won't want to switch, but he has a big island and probably many knights who would want an opportunity to rise up. Do you think that we could see some new characters from the Isle showing up around the John Connington-Ariane plot? Thank you, Micah, first of all. 
really good to have a question from you and this is one of my favorites of the day in fact because i like staff talk and uh, i like thinking about how staff in general now i think what's important to remember is if i'm remembering correctly is in john Connington's last chapter down at, at griffin's roost they say that you know they haven't just landed at griffin's roost they've been landing all along the coast they've already landed at taff and he's he said like take prisoners bring them across to the mainland so probably Selwyn Tarf is already in custody of the Golden Company so I think we're we're bound to see him you would assume and maybe he'll bring some others that we don't know about yet coming over as well that would be pretty cool so in terms of what is he going to do about the Egan situation I don't think he's going to have that much choice at the beginning at least I think he's just going to be be part of it so I mean yeah I don't know if there's going to be that much choice at the beginning as for after that what well I guess he could stick his heels down and he could refuse to be part of it but I don't see that from Selwyn I mean in all fairness we don't know a bunch about Selwyn at all do we really we've got some very very fleeting memories from uh, from Bien and none of them really reveal that much about his kind of political strategies or how he likes to act we've not got a lot a lot else to go on so we're kind of left guessing but i think he's probably just gonna go along with them i would say i think he's gonna buy into the strength of the stormlands and doing kind of what's best he's been fairly lucky in that they've been sort of removed i don't think they've been as decimated other stormlands houses so they probably have something left to give and i would assume that they're just gonna have to go along with Aegon at the beginning here yeah i would i would agree with that um to go back in time a little bit i think you know we really don't know a ton about his allegiances prior to Mm. his supposed capture um you know beyond brienne's movements we don't see a whole lot we do know from davos that selwyn and davos secretly met back in clash in the middle of the night but he rejected aid for stannis at the time Played. That's right, I'd forgot about that. Yeah. yeah, and not much later is when we are introduced to Brienne on Renly's side. There's some mention of Tarth arrows aiding the younger Baratheon. But beyond that, there's really no more mention of their fighting forces. We don't know what happens after Renly falls, given Brienne's exit from mm-hmm. Renly's camp and you know her lack of on-page correspondence back home after the fact. We really don't have a viewpoint into this or what happened to the rest of the Knights of the Sapphire Isle. I do think that you're probably right that there's some degree of I'm now a captive and so therefore of course I support you. Um, you know, I, I'd be interested to see who landed on Tarth and, and how violent or uh, diplomatic that invasion might have been. Um, I can't imagine it was the easiest mm. place in the world to siege uh, at. They, you know, we've got the Straits of Tarth. The location's pretty close to Shipbreaker Bay. You know, they'd have to be pretty careful to not, you know, lose ships trying to, to take the island. No, that's, I was just going to agree. That's a good point about the Straits of Tarth. I could see that. I don't know how much it involved Aegon specifically, but I could see that being a site of a future battle because I'm a big proponent that we are going to get some more naval battles. I don't think George has quite scratched that itch yet. And we know that Straits have been used before. They were used in the Greyjoy Rebellion on the other side of Westeros over at Fair Isle. So maybe we see 
kind of we like we know George likes to have his kind of repetitions from history yeah. we could see that kind of thing happen again maybe it involves Victorian again maybe it doesn't maybe it's Daenerys coming over to fight Aegon or whoever it is but I could I could definitely see some battles happening around Tuff because like you say I think it would be a very very cool setting I, I hope we do actually get to go there that would be pretty I would cool. love to see the Sapphire Isle House Tarth is one of my mm. favorites not just because of Brienne but I just love the imagery of it I, I love the idea of it I hope we get more in terms of, you know, just some some ideas or some some thoughts that I had on, you know, where Tarth stood following the fall of Renly, you know, at this point, Stannis is pretty far north and uh, likely no longer like really on the even stars radar at this point. Um, mm. We, of course, know that Vargo Hope uh, is a Lannister creature. He's the one who a- attempted to ransom Brienne and then rejected the 300 gold because he wanted sapphires. As a Lannister creature, I don't expect Selwyn is thinking particularly highly of the Boy King or his allies. So I think it basically comes down to whether Aegon and his Golden Company uh, you know, how they try to treat with, with Lord Selwyn there. Are they trying to invade like the Golden Company is doing elsewhere? Or is it more like what we saw at Griffin's Roost where, you know, it's not very violent? Um, you know, given his, uh, given the Even Star's reluctance to support another claimant, even if they, or I think if they approached him honorably, you know, rather than as a, a pure captive, that they could potentially find an ally in Selwyn Tarth, you know? And then... Yeah, I wonder... If I think it might even come down to like who's doing the the treating here. Is it Aegon or is it John Connington? Because like you say, there's kind of two different approaches here. And also I think the timing might be quite important because we expect some things to go down at Storm's End. So if, if this happens before Storm's End, which it could because like we say he's already been captured, then maybe that plays in a part in it. Maybe if they're successful in taking Storm's End, then maybe that really impresses the even star and really and does get him on side. Maybe he just respects the strength of them and says, Oh, these guys are actually for real. Maybe I should get behind them. And you make a really good point about, I mean, I'd forgotten really about uh, the Stannis interaction and uh, the Renly stuff as well. Probably important to remember is we know this rumor of Stannis dying is going to get out there anyway. So maybe that'll make its way down to the Stormlands. It almost doesn't matter if it does, just because, as you say, it's been so long since they've heard anyway. Probably half of them just assume he's died up at the wall because, like... Sure. It's the other end of the world to them, so who cares? But yeah, I think he's probably just kind of... I mean, this is the problem we've had with the Stormlands and that we've not visited them for so long that we just don't know what the governance is there, what the general feeling is there, what's going on, especially for people out on an island as well who are more removed than normal. I think that's just going to be really cool to actually find out in the first place if we do get to meet Selwyn which we probably do and then yeah he might just be waiting for someone to kind of come along and take his allegiance because what else has he been up to and I guess he can fall on one side or the other in terms of his family he probably doesn't know what Brienne's up to I don't think he's had correspondence I could be wrong there so maybe he's thinking that she's gone so what does he have left does that affect his decision or maybe he's holding out hope and is trying to keep everything and trying to keep his people safe it could go either way but yeah I I agree with you I think it could very easily just kind of go along with it yeah and you know before we wrap this one out I do want to address one more part of Micah's question which is about the the Knights of Tarth 
I feel like I need to hedge a little bit here and say, because there's no textual evidence of what happens to uh, the forces from Tarth after Renly falls, that I suppose it is possible that they, you know, joined up with Stannis like so many did. Um, It's possible that they returned home. That's vaguely, I I really don't see them joining King Joffrey, King Tommen. Um, I I just, for whatever reason, I just don't see that logistically making a whole lot of sense but if they did return home i think that wherever you know tarth places its allegiance either if you know selwyn is continues to be a captive and his, his men are forced or if he does go along with Aegon or or another we we see them mentioned as um you know having strength and archery which i think makes sense for someone who's located on an island uh and uh, it's just cool to see a little bit of that show up in the story. And I wonder where those those uh, those bows will place and what side of the battlefield they'll fall onto. Because we see other examples of famous archery companies, um, famous archers, famous bows, etc. Lining up uh, around different different kings. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, where this kind of ranged fighting force lands. Yeah, and that's been a big part of the theories about Storm's End as well. The use of archery, like Brendan Beefish has his kind of comparison to Agincourt and all that so don't know if that could has time to get involved there but definitely maybe could give some ideas that would be very very cool to see so yeah there's a lot to think about I definitely I definitely just hope we get to meet Selwyn that's my hope for now it'd be kind of rubbish if we don't ever get to meet him yeah I agree I mean we hear that he's such a great father like I mean Brienne thinks really fondly of him he obviously empowers her to be the the woman that she wants to be rather than I mean I know he tried a bit but you know in contrasting with like a Samwell Tarly, uh, Randall Tarly yeah. type, where it's like you will be what I expect you to be, or you can fuck off and die. That I think, Ran- uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Selwyn is kind of the anti-Randall in in that, and uh, it really makes that that scene between Brienne and Randall so much more interesting. I think when you when you think about mm. those dynamics. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I'm all in on meeting Selwyn. I mean, his his nickname is nearly the name of a city in Skyrim. So that that's enough to get in my good books, personally. If you're kind of named like something in Skyrim, you're okay with me. Absolutely. Well, we should probably move along to question eight here. Uh, mm-hmm. This one is from Rebecca in Wisconsin. She Ooh. asks, most likely non-titled point of view character who will gain a title in Winds of Winter? Yes, I, I like this question. I think we can pretty much, let's go down the list. Let's firstly just remind everyone of uh, the POVs that fit into that category. So obviously, if at any point they've had a title, and um, we'll, we'll include the slightly adjusted names for these as well, then they're no longer viable. So for instance, like Sansa never gets a title, but she does become Elaine. So we'll, we'll discount her as well. So go, I've got the list in front of me here. We'll go through. I'm not going to count Catelyn Stark either way. So the ones who've never had any kind of title are Bran, Jon, Daenerys, Tyrion, Davos, Sam, Jamie, Cersei, Brienne, and Melisandre. Her one chapter is just named Melisandre. So how many have they got there? Nine. So we've got nine of our POVs who haven't had a title yet. Do you think any of them will be? Well, actually, that last one we added on there, I think of all the likely ones, I'm almost surprised that Melisandre wasn't given one to begin with because it seems like it's right there, doesn't it? The Red Woman. <laughs> that, that seems to fit so well. 
Yeah, I don't think she, I don't know how much she thinks of herself as the red woman versus so many other people referring to her as that. So to me, I, I think it fits that she in her POV is is Melisandre, but I could I could That's see it going that way. So how do you how much do you think that plays a part in the naming? Because I'm just thinking of, so Fionn's, I don't know, maybe that's a bad example, because I guess, but Fionn's Prince of Winterfell one, he's definitely not thinking of him, maybe he is. Hmm, now you've got me thinking. (laughs) Some of those apply, some of those don't. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah, no, you're right, I'll take that. That's true. Fionn's so 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 broken that I think he's going to go by whatever name he's being given at the moment, and so I think it might fit. Yeah. As far as who I think might take a title in, in this book, my that would be either Bran or Daenerys. I think, you know, she's going through kind of a transformation right now in her final chapter that we read. And, you know, whether that's deciding to be the dragon, as they say in the show, or just to fully own this role and fully go after her real main goal, finally, after spending a lot of time traipsing about Essos, I think we could see her start to take on that title. Bran, in a similar way, I think, as he becomes less and less Bran and becomes more and more ingrained in, you know, the network of the Weirwood, uh, you know, will he, how much will he even be Bran anymore? And so, of course, that would necessitate a new title. Yeah, I think Bran is a pretty good shout, actually. That would be a really good way to kind of show his, as you say, like, dehumanization is loss of self that would be really really effective to go across Daenerys is very interesting to me I think that would be a very like really significant move by George there if he like a ballsy move because she's obviously like as central as they get she is part of the the triforce we call them of Tyrion John and Daenerys so if, if she was to change title or to gain one then that really would be um probably signifying quite a major event so i think people would definitely yeah. stand up and take note of this and i think i think we're probably heading towards that event so that that's kind of why it's one of my yeah, picks i guess my my last pick here my last thought here would be john but i'm not convinced that we're going to see more of him as a pov character when he comes back from the dead oh, i think there, there's a good chance that that changes and and either he won't remain a POV character and therefore wouldn't satisfy this question or uh, if he does I think then yeah we probably could see a title change from him so I, I know I basically said yes and no to this one but I think it's it's pretty black and white for John. I would agree with John because again he's already had a major event happen to him he is going to be a different John. Okay, good. Yeah, that's true. There is an argument of whether we'll have him as a POV or not. I'm pretty convinced that we will, personally. But you could definitely see him coming back with some kind of uh, nickname to signify that he's changed in whatever way. I mean, (laughs) we're going to talk about that in a second, not to give any spoilers away. But there's definitely room for that. I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's play a fun game off the fly here. This isn't planned. Let's let's do a fun game. Let's say that all nine are going to get at least one title let's see if we can come up with a cool title for each of the nine so brand brands first what's brand's chapter title going to be can you think of one oh, they're going to be like the weirwood branch <laughs> something yeah. weird i mean i always think more so of brand in terms of flying and so i think it would probably be something bird related um you know the three oh, i could just straight up be the winged wolf yeah oh i love I mean, that that's, that's a good before, one yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was what he was originally kind of put down as, wasn't he? That's how Jojen got across. So it would have to come out of what, like a big moment, wouldn't it? So like mm-hmm. if he like walks a dragon or something like that, yeah. or does something massive, then yeah, definitely that fits. Okay, okay. So we've got Tick Bran off. The Winged Wolf is Bran's one. 
John, we can't just COVID. What could John be? It'd just be there's going to be something else, Wolfie, isn't it? I mean, it could just be you know the name that was intended for John uh, when Ooh, once that's revealed. Yes. So I don't I don't have a strong idea of what that name is going to be. I I don't like making those types of predictions, but um, I, I think no. I think it could be that. That's a good idea. I'm not for that. Yeah, that would be. That would be a, a page to turn, wouldn't it? You turn around, Aegon, or whatever mm-hmm. it is. I mean, you'd just be... Who's yeah, Jaehaerys? like be very, very cool. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And you'd be expecting... So if you if you were told, oh yeah, John is going to get a title in this one, then, as I just said, you'd be thinking something Starky, something Wolfy, wouldn't you? So yeah, if George turned around and gave that instead, that would be pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. We'll jot that down. Uh, what about Daenerys? What was the ones you just came up with? There? I feel like my think? pick is the Dragon Queen. I think she's, yeah. you know, she's heading closer and closer to her house words. She's getting more and more connected specifically to Drogon. I think, you know, I, I think she is down this path of becoming fire and blood and all that embodies. So to me, uh, the, the Dragon Queen makes sense. Yeah, I can't think of anything to beat there. Um, maybe we could go Hunger Games, call the girl on fire, but I think we've probably done that. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to get her full title because I don't think that George wants the chapter title to take up a whole page, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this chapter is just her title and then uh, then it's someone else's chapter. Right. <laughs> what about Tyrion? This is probably a tougher one. Oh, I would. I, I don't know what I think it would be, but I hope it's the Lord of Casterly Rock. Oh yeah, that would be cool. And just because yeah. you know Tywin would like be like becoming a centrifuge in his grave at that point if it was uh, if he was Lord. Yeah, even like oh, I don't know, Lord Lannister or something like that. Yeah, that would be cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second son, I wouldn't mind that. That would be pretty good. Oh yeah, if he does con- if he actually gains control of the second sons and we get him as the second son. I love that. That's really good. <laughs> You could, if you buy into the theories of him losing his tongue, then we could add Silent Lion or something of that nature. But I don't know. That's a bit guessy, that one. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Davos. And there's quite a few options of Davos you could go. Because he seems like one of the, like, he, he could fit because he's probably going to have less chapters. He could be, he's going to be more on the periphery, probably at the beginning anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have strong feelings. I guess like the first thing that came to my head was the smuggler, but I don't know that that really, it it only fits for me because of the mission he's on right now. Beyond that, I feel like he's mostly, you know, moved past that identity, but I'm not sure. What are your ideas? Uh, My instant thought is just something like, the kind old man. <laughs> His father Christmas, he's coming to look after you. Something of that nature. I think the smuggling thing that could come up again if he does have to smuggle Rickon in somewhere or out of Skagos or if he's going to end up helping the people at Hardhome and he has to kind of get them off. I don't know what he could be. I don't know how you'd put it. Yeah, I can't think of anything much better than... Oh, we. I guess we could have a hand-related one like Barristan does. So he has... A, what does he have? Hand of the Queen. So I guess he could have Hand of the Something or the Absent Hand or something like that. Yeah, maybe a play on his his loss of fingers or something i don't know but um oh yeah, no, yeah i kind of just hope he stays davos i know we're i know we're doing this this game here but i hope he stays davos honestly yeah i like <laughs> davos although the fingerless does <laughs> just make me laugh. oh that's funny absent husband that'd be a good one <laughs> uh what about sam sam's hard i think i mean the slayer but i feel like he's not 
I don't think that that's the path he's on anymore. That probably would have fit earlier yeah, on. That. I'm just thinking, I just reread his last chapter with, with Marwin calling him Slayer a bunch of times. So that's why that's in my head. Mm. Uh, yeah, maybe it does stick then. Especially if he does uh, like something against, maybe not Euron specifically, but like he just does something big in the defense of the city. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't really think of any other mm-hmm. options for him. He's one I who don't I don't think, think is going to get a special either. title, so... No, no. Sorry, Sam. What about Jamie? He's There's many, many more options. I think you could go with Jamie if you thought he was going to get one. The obvious being the Kingslayer or something yeah. like that. Uh, I suppose we could call him the Queenslayer if he was uh, going to kill Cersei. Although that would be a bit of a spoiler to put that at the I'd beginning love to of the see chapter. It have something to do with cool. his vows, uh, especially given like where he's at right now, where we we're about to see him have a, a trial or a showdown or something with with Lady Stoneheart. Um, mm. I think you know. I just always whenever we I think of Jamie vows are the first thing that jumps out. So it'd be pretty cool if you know, like you're turning an early page in wins and the title is Oathbreaker because you wouldn't immediately know if that means Brienne or Jamie. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I like that one. That'd be cool. So should we do Brienne next then? That was a nice segue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's right next to him. I wonder if you can get the sapphire something in there. Or the Lady of Tarth. Somehow. I mean, we don't know Lady exactly what happened with the Tarth invasion. We don't know. Mm. Yeah, true. We don't know where Lord Selwyn is headed or if he is alive. We we are not getting enough detail. So it could be that. I mean, A, a, a Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, I like. Uh, well, that would be the best. I'd it? cry. Ultimate, <laughs> I'd cry so hard. I love Brienne. Yeah, I would weep over the page. I think that would be the ultimate. We definitely don't want anything... Like the beauty would be quite harsh. I feel we definitely don't want. I that. don't want that. Yeah, don't don't make fun of my no, girl. Night of the Seven Kingdoms would be the one. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, uh, Cersei. You could go a lot of it. She might actually get one. To be fair, yeah, she's very changed now. Queen Mother. Um, you could get the Lady of Casterly Rock, like to go along with your Tyrion oh, one yeah. earlier. Um, Queen Mother, yeah, Regent. She might be Regent again now. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know. There's so many possibilities with Cersei, and I think it. I need to see more about what happens with her reception, you know, by the public, by her supposed allies, uh, before I feel like I can make a good guess. So I don't, I don't have a great answer. I bet there's something. I'm trying to think if there's something in Maggie's prophecy that you could get a title of. I'm trying to think of the exact wording, but I bet there's. There's something you could get out oh, of there, that, yeah, reckon, probably. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, please send us your Cersei ideas. <laughs> for... Yeah, I bet I bet everyone's got lots of ideas for all of these, to be fair. Is, it, is that the last one? That's nine, isn't uh, it? Well, we have to do Melisandre. I think you already said the oh, red yeah, woman Melisandre. for her. I yeah, think as an alternate, it. I would posit maybe Melanie. Depends on where her mental state is at the time. Yeah, that, that would be cool. I'd like that, yeah. Cool. All right. Good, good, good. I've lost uh, track of what question we're actually on now because we went on the tangent. Oh, it's question nine. We're nearing the end. Oh, yeah. This is what I just mentioned a minute ago. So this is from James P, who we always like to have a chat with over on the Radio Westeros Discord. Thank you, James. He says, this is very connected to what we've just been talking about. How is Jon Snow revived and what do you expect to be different about him afterwards? Big question. Big question. Great question. Um, I don't know about you, but I've always kind of leaned towards it being Melisandre who revives him. I don't think that's like a shocking prediction. Um, the resurrections we've seen so far in Westeros are heavily tied to R'hllor, and I doubt we're going to see much different in John's case, especially with Melisandre right there. Yeah, I think we don't really have to look too far. I think George is pretty, like you say, uh, signaled 
what's going to happen. I think the the interest in it in is what she might need to get it done if she has to burn someone, if she has to burn Shireen, although I think we've kind of semi-confirmed that it's actually going to be Stannis who does that, but that doesn't mean it can't be under Melisandre's direction. Mm-hmm. Or is she going to burn Gilly's child, thinking it's Mance's child? Or is it going to be someone else that we haven't thought of? I mean, it could be anyone, really. Yeah. So I think that's where the the margins might shift a bit, but I think we're in agreement that, that Melisandre will be the way that Jon comes back uh, after probably hanging around in Ghost for a while. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I really hope that nothing happens to Ghost in that transformation either. I, you know, I, well, as you were <laughs> rattling off people who could be burned, I was like, this anyone but Ghost, like literally anyone but Ghost, please. You know, as far as the second... <laughs> yeah, no, I, I will not stand for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as the second part of the question, what do we expect to be different about John afterwards? Considering Barrick's comments on this, uh, on there being less of him there with each resurrection, and that very obviously being true to an even greater degree with Lady Stoneheart, I think John's going to lose something of himself. Um, I don't think you get to come back from death as a whole person. I think, you know, George has been pretty clear on you know, Gandalf should have stayed dead. And, uh, you know, I think returning from the dead has a heavy price, as we see. Um, Given the theories that he may inhabit ghosts temporarily, I think we might see him being a bit more instinctual, acting more on his impulses, more more wolf-like, maybe even harkening back to Rob, who's always so, you know, tied to that wolf comparison, the young wolf. He's so fierce and bad. I wonder if we'll see some of that. Yeah, I would agree. I think the like the coming back more animalistic thing, I think that's pretty popular among the fandom. I know Bookshelf Stud and Joe Magician had a, a stream about that once upon a time and had some great evidence of John coming back like a bit more in touch with emotions and he doesn't hold back as much, especially after Dance, which is basically like a whole book of him trying to hold back emotions and trying to fit into into this little box that he doesn't actually fit into yeah the ghost thing i find interesting because like as you say we've already had beric we've already had catelyn we've seen that they can come back and they obviously didn't have walking abilities they didn't have somewhere to go so what difference is it what's going to be special about john being ghost is it just that he's dead for longer perhaps uh, it definitely could be they could keep his body frozen pretty easily up there in the mm-hmm. ice cells is it going to be that he's not going to lose so much of his memory and he just comes back a bit more whole than uh, Stoneheart or Beric did. Yeah, I think that's probably most likely. Yeah. I think a different angle we could take with James's question is um, not only what's different about his personality, but more about his aims as well, because we already saw this big shift at the end they didn't quite get to complete. Now I think he's probably going to really go into it 100% that he is going to redirect himself back towards the family line and getting what he wants. I don't know if it's going to follow the show exactly where he he's going to make the argument that I, I signed up for life and I already died once so I don't need to be part of the Night's Watch. I don't know if it's going to follow that exact line. I could see them arriving at the same point maybe. I don't think it'll be precisely the same, but I do think his aims are going to be more tied to what we saw at the end of Dance oh, Day. Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm going for Aya. I don't... I, Screw you. I'm going for Aya. You can't stop me. Yeah, I mean, he already had that decision made in his mind, breaking with this duty he'd yeah. been trying to hold himself to for so long when he clearly is so conflicted throughout every book. Uh, so I don't see him waking back up from death and being like, now all of a sudden I care about being Lord Commander more than I... You know, I don't, I don't see that happening, especially if he's if he is inhabiting ghost during that time i mean that's such a strong stark connection that we have there and and i, I just uh I, I i think there's no path forward but for him to continue on with with what he wanted to do while he was alive yeah and i also think 
the other, not only was it that feeling of I arrived at the end, but you also had this big rush when all the wildlings were, you know, standing up and slamming their their ale horns up for him and shouting his name. He had finally got those those. It was his king in the north moment. He finally had that army and people that he knew were actually on side after this whole book again of you know having your bow and marshes and having your awful yarwicks and hearing the whispers. Now he actually had these passionate people that wanted to go and do the same thing as him and respected him. And, you know, if he wanted to, to go and do that. Now, I do think, at least in the interim, if, if he wakes up and Castle Black is just blood-soaked and the chaos is just everywhere and, you know, it has all gone wrong, I do think he's still going to be like, I need to put the law down here first and whoever needs to be punished needs to be punished, whether that's for his murder, whoever else has been murdered. I would be very, very interested. I think the most interesting thing would be, uh, I have mentioned this on Scraps and Scrolls, so I won't focus on it too much, but if he does wake up and says, okay, how did you bring me back? And Melisandre or whoever says, yeah, we, we did burn Shireen for you, or even worse, yeah, we did burn the baby for you. Then what does John do in that instance? Because you, if he does come back like the Wolfman, like we're saying, and he gets told that, you can imagine that retribution being very, very swift and very, very harsh. And that would be very interesting to see from a moral standpoint, not just in the interim, but then afterwards. Like, how does he go on with that knowledge, knowing that an innocent baby or an innocent child had to die for him to come back when he didn't even ask to? Like, that's a really deep question that, we, again, we could go on for about four hours, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's other examples in the books of people punishing someone for immoral or unethical actions taken out of loyalty to them. So I, I could definitely see that happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that fits in line with John's view of morality very well. Yeah, I, I think the, the probably the best thing we can hope for out of John, <laughs> just to lighten the mood slightly there, away from the child death, is... Like, as you say, assumedly, if he spends that long in Ghost, he will probably will come back like Super Warg. And that's, yeah, definitely sign me up for that. Sign me up for Super Warg, John with Ghost, because mm-hmm. he has had glimpses, but not as much as the other Stark children, because, I mean, he's got other stuff to do. So I really, really hope we do get a focus on that, because uh, Ghosty deserves yeah. it. Ghosty's the and, best. And John, like, I mean, unlike some of the other Starks, I feel like he has kind of been putting ghost aside even when people around him are telling him keep your wolf close what are you doing like he you know it's kind of just eh, well it makes <laughs> yeah. other people uncomfortable or i've got other things to do or he's happier hunting in the north you know and 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 i think being forced to inhabit ghost for a while is going to change that perspective in him and, and change his priorities around uh keeping ghost nearby i hope we don't have to worry about a hbo budget making it harder for ghost to be around moving forward if that's the case which is which is wonderful i'd love to see more of him yes please Mm -hmm. yes please okay well we are we've arrived at our final question already would you like the honor of of doing our 10th remember at the beginning when i said i was going to like slide some funny questions in here i I did that of course (laughs) so good that's a good way yeah. to end because it did get dark. Let's, there let's lighten it up. Now, we're not shifting the tone from Jon Snow too much here, but uh, Patrick from Michigan sent in this question. Uh, he says, is Jon Snow that pretty in the books? I, I think <laughs> we're referring to Kit Harrington here. Uh, my answer, probably not. <laughs> I mean, I think he's probably uh, not bad looking, but you get all these comparisons to the Starks of having like this horsey long face, uh, being kind of grim and dark. And, you know, John is certainly very brooding. Um, I think that, uh, I don't know, is anyone as attractive in real life as they are as when portrayed on TV? I don't know. 
Um, that said... He's definitely not the same height as Kit Harrington. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that said, though, he, you know, if we believe R plus L equals J, then, you know, he's got... Uh, you know, Liana was considered a great beauty, even despite this, whatever, horse-faced starkiness uh, that, that may have been mm-hmm. there. But, uh, you know, Rhaegar is talked about constantly about how attractive he is. Oh, my God. Like, the number of times Cersei is just sitting there dwelling on how hot Rhaegar <laughs> is. You know, we can't forget that. And so if if those are his parents, I, I got to imagine he's not, you know, hideous to look at either. So, you know, what I guess trying to think of some of the, like the visual differences between book and show Jon Snow now to answer that question better. They both have the the scars, don't they? Mm-hmm. Both got the little eye scars there. I think John, book Johns are probably worse. I think there's more of them. Yeah, definitely. I think I don't know. I'm you're talking to like a theatrical makeup nerd here, so uh, it's it's hard to, <laughs> to do that kind of consistent, uh, you know, facial scarring and prosthetic work and have it look good and more importantly, the same every single time that you see it on screen. So we saw that in a lot of characters. I mean, think about Tyrion, especially. We we see some of their physical deformities or uh, oddities toned down quite a bit in in the show and so I, I agree with you there that, that john's probably a little bit more scraped up at this point i think you can sign me up for a yes book john yeah scraped up but probably still pretty pretty yeah i think that's that's probably a, a good guess there i mean a part of charisma is is being attractive uh i think or not necessarily a uh requirement but it's certainly an element of it and i think you know john's leadership qualities lend to him being some level of charismatic and and so that could definitely tie in i mean it does depend i guess what happens to his body how long he's dead for i mean maybe his could freeze his nose off or something while he's waiting to be reanimated or who knows i think val is still probably gonna fancy him as she obviously does now Mm -hmm. yeah i would agree with that so i know this is kind of a silly question did you know we were gonna get this serious about it patrick from michigan (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what were you planning when you sent this in well i think i think it's good that we've ended on a, an agreement at yeah. least that that's 10 in the books already wow so there we go everybody just 90 left to go through which we do have the majority of but again like we keep saying please do send in your questions and please do send in your answers as well we'd love to read them we might even mention a few of them we will be back well we're not really sure how regularly we'll be doing this uh, as we said at the beginning there's lots of scheduling to be worked out here but it's going to be pretty regular you're not going to have to wait too long uh, we might do more than 10 next time we might keep it similar to this i mean we did have to do quite a big intro this time but emily how did you find your first uh, foray onto the aisle was it terrible or was it no amazing? i loved it i think you know i probably spent a good two weeks being very uh nervous i guess um you know, I mean, I, I listened to a great podcast recently um, about imposter syndrome kind of in the fandom. And and uh, goodness, if you can remember uh, what podcast that was on, I will shout you out next time because I'm feeling feeling bad but that I don't remember. But, um, you know, I definitely felt a little bit of that of like, gosh, why am I here? Why <laughs> uh, are you sure? <laughs> but no, I, I really enjoyed talking about this. I just find it really easy to talk to you. I love hearing your takes. Um, and I, I hope our l- listeners feel the same way. Um, yeah, I, I had a great time. I think they definitely will feel the same as me. I think they, uh, well, I definitely made the correct choice in asking you to come aboard. I think we're very lucky to have you here. I think this was this was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to the next set of questions and also your 
your interview episode, the Patreon only episode, and to doing some Sporkle Spectacular as well. Yeah. So we've got lots to look forward to. And that's before we even get on to scraps and screens and everything else that will come in the future as well. So definitely lots happening here on the aisle. So thank you, Emily, for coming aboard. It's a brilliant way to celebrate the 100th episode. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you thank you uh, thank you everybody for for tuning in and listening and sending in the questions we've already got uh the ones who are still to get as well that'd be lovely as i say we'll be back soon we're going to have more questions along these lines some big some small uh we're going to have ones like this just looking at this quickly here we'll have ones like uh will we see anything from sand or the quiet aisle we'll have ones like our boldest predictions for the book as a whole yeah that that one might take a while to get through we're going to have loads, so uh, lots to talk about still. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface, but that's okay. We've got 90 left to get through. And yeah, again, thank you everybody for the past 99 episodes and for this one. Thank you, Emily, again. And uh, well, we'll see you all next time, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening. We will be back pretty soon. Like I said earlier, there'll be scraps and scrolls. Probably by the time you're listening to this, it'll be theon one next or maybe if editing takes a while it'll be ariane one instead but either way you've got that you will have more emily coming up soon for interviews and sporkle spectacular and some more questions we'll see you next time everybody thanks a bunch